Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Today's deep dive on a democratic shaken classic sees us joined by Portland, Oregon-based bartender, beverage director, author, and editor, Jim Meehan. Sorry if I'm missing anything there, pal. It is an impressive resume. And to today's show, Jim brings 25 years of experience and some of the most eloquent language we've enjoyed yet in this definitive exploration of the last word. So what about that cocktail? We know where it ends, you know, with the uh, last word and all that. But where to begin? Well, I will say this. Today we get to splash into multiple facets of history because this is an historic cocktail, but one that's also had a hugely significant impact on the landscape of modern classics. Paper Plane, Final Ward, Naked and Famous. You can thank the last word for those. We are exploring all of the above today, listener, and more on today's edition of Cocktail College. Brought to you by the Fine Pair Podcast Network. Just gonna, we're just going to transition in there real naturally. Um, it is the man, the audio transcription software, likes to call Jimmy Han. It is, of course, Jimmy Han. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cocktail College Podcast. Excited to be here, Tim. And I have got a starter question here for you today. Starter for 10, Jim. Does that mean 10 points or the 10th question you're starting with first? Starter for 10 points. Okay, 10 points. Are you the kind of person who likes to have the last word? I love the last word cocktail. I'll take those 10 points. (laughs) I'm excited for this one because this is, of course, a historic cocktail, and we're going to dive into those roots there. But one thing I find fascinating about the last word is also its influence on modern mixology. So this is one of those ones where we get to do two deep dives on one drink. It's a twofer. I'm all for, I'm all for the twofer. So do you want to talk about that right there? Do you want to dive in straight away to that history and, and give us an outline of the backstory of this drink? Is this one where its origins are known or is it more shrouded in, in mystery? You know, you get a lot of those in the cocktail world. Well, the kind of exciting thing for me about this drink, the last word cocktail is a cocktail that really exemplifies um, the contemporaneous sort of present of the past. And when I say that, it sounds fancy. But what I mean is that there, there are certain drinks that are old drinks that we sort of have, you know, an untethered connection to, like we really have no understanding of and, and really, it's very hard to establish where they came from, like the Manhattan cocktail or the margarita cocktail, the martini cocktail. There are many sort of um, places where we could sort of guess where they came from and their sort of myths and legends. But the, the last word is a cocktail where we know exactly kind of where it was printed and, and then where it kind of came from. And I think more importantly, the, it's a drink that was made by a bartender in Seattle named Murray Stenson at the Zigzag Cafe, who made it for years and years and years for all sorts of folks. 
And he really sort of brought this drink to the forefront of a lot of our minds. Um, and so I, I love sort of, I love the history of this drink because it's, it, it's connected to someone who's near and dear and, and who kind of brought it back in a very personal way and made it in some ways his signature drink, even though it was a classic. And, and, and when would this have been, sorry, so this is this the rediscovery of the cocktail you mean? Yeah, I would say that it's, I wouldn't even say it's the rediscovery of the cocktail. The drink originally appears in uh, Bottoms Up by Ted Saucier, uh, a drink, uh, a book that was published in the, I think, 1950s. And it's it's a book that's filled with all sorts of pinup art. Um, it is a, if you like pinup art and if you like sort of collect old cocktail books, it's a it's a pretty book and it's and it's a book worth adding to your collection. But I wouldn't say that it's, one of the more important cocktail books to collect. And the the last word is the most significant cocktail that that comes from that book. So I, I think that when we talk about discovery or rediscovery, um, I think bartending is a lot like DJing. And, and, and when I say that, I mean that, that bartenders are not typically making original music. They're, they're taking... Uh, tracks or records and they're putting them in their yeah their crate or their bag and then they're playing them at a club and i think in that sense this drink really sort of had its most important uh dj and club in zigzag cafe and murray stenson and i think mm -hmm. i discovered it um or I, I first was made aware of this drink by a colleague of mine at the pegu club named Brian Miller. We both opened the bar in 2005. Brian mm -hmm. frequently went back to Seattle and, and visited Murray and, and brought back drinks like this. And there's a Dubonnet drink called Don't Give Up the Ship. And he also brought back a drink called the Trident, which uh, Robert Hess had popularized in Seattle at that time. And so it was very much uh, 2005. Five is for those of you who are a little bit younger on the podcast. The, the iPhone doesn't come out until 2007, and while people are online in 2005, we're not a digitally connected society at that point. So we really are still um, the bartending sort of like the repertoire of drinks we're making is part of a, um, in many ways, part of a. Uh, a spoke like a word, word of mouth, like of, a word of mouth culture. Yeah, like it really it remains something that is part of spoken word or like things. Yeah. the information we had was told to us in many ways, as opposed to like discovered on a Google search. Mm -hmm. Brian Miller, there you mentioned, friend of the show, and I believe he may have also mentioned Mari during his re uh, during his episode. Would need to give that one a re listen, but definitely um, shout out there to him. Also something, I've got a question for you in terms of preference. Um, you spoke about those cocktails that th their origins are, you know, fuzzy at best. You know, they're specific ones, whether it's the Manhattan or the margarita, like you say. And then you look at a drink like this, like the, the last word, and we really can like trace a lot of its history and these important moments in its history. Which one is kind of more appealing to you just from a, I don't know, a philosophical standpoint just the, or, or just sentimental kind of um, way of looking at cocktails? Would it be those ones where we can trace it right back or would it be those ones that are a little bit more open to interpretation? I personally think that the one thing that I've tried to do 
in my career, going back to editing the Food and Wine Cocktail book in 2005, was based a lot around what I saw Brian Miller doing at the Pegu Club. And that is, Brian had a, a, a sort of satchel full of these like uh, little stenographer's notebooks. And when we were doing all this recipe development every night at the Pegu Club, and Brian had sharpened pencils and was constantly writing things down, erasing, you know, put, he was documenting everything in real time. And I think that while Brian, I don't know where, where that, where he went with that, I always told him he needed to like publish it or figure out what to do with it. And he's not a, he's not a promotional person or not someone who's very digitally savvy. So it's probably all still on paper for him. But <laughs> I think that when I saw Brian doing that, I was very cognizant of the fact that I was living in a historical moment. And I think Brian was too, and he was trying to capture it. So I would say that the drinks that we can actually say, like, this is the moment that, like, the sort of, that this was created or this was the person who it was served to, I think that that is, I have a much more, uh, I have much more reverence and fondness for that sort of, drink because I think that yeah. allows me going back to this idea of the bartender as like DJ, it allows, it ha, it comes with the metadata for me as a bartender to be able to understand when, when I should play this drink, who I should serve it to and mm -hmm. what be resonant for the mood or for the, for the, for the recipients of the drink. I think the drinks that are sort of palimpsests where we sort of just write and rewrite different versions of history, I think are, um, they're really frustrating because it, for me as a sort of person who cares about the history of a drink, it creates, there's a lot of imposter syndrome that goes on and everyone sort of claims that it was theirs or they did it or kind of like make a version of it that's their own. And that's frustrating to me. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I love that kind of analogy that you give there of the, of the tracks and the DJ, um, and also that anecdote there about Brian. I mean, we had um, Jared Brown on recently who just published um, Dick Bradsell's cocktail book, Dick Tales. And he was talking about they have, this is not a printed in, in the terms of like printed text. This is copies of his original notes when he was coming up with drinks. And I think having those things preserved in history, it doesn't, it doesn't just you know, it doesn't just give us the definitive story, but also tells us what was going on in people's minds at the time. And I think just gives us so much more perspective on that era and, and the drink itself. Which So I find that fascinating personally. I agree. And I think that I, I, I picked a copy of that book up as soon as I saw it. And I just think it is, it is, it's vital. Uh, it's, it's really, and it's very interesting because I think that it's, um, Especially someone, someone like Dick, who, I mean, it's, he is someone who, you know, just passed somewhat recently, whose career was very much uh, of our, of my time or, you know, in our time, like I was able to go visit him behind the bar. And, and I think that we spend a lot of time talking about dead people's drinks and don't spend a lot of time talking about um, living people's drinks, uh, certainly living some of whom are maybe, you know, on their way, you know, maybe moving on pretty soon. So I'm glad that Dick, I'm glad that, that Jared and Anastasia and, 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 and Bia put that book out. Cause I just think that, 
so much of what we're doing now is a byproduct of what Dick did or what Dale did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that idea of, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, also, that's a really natural segue into the next question that I had for you here. So, you know, just to put it out there that the composition of this drink is gin, chartreuse, maraschino and lime juice. Um, it's equal parts. We'll get into that. But as I mentioned at the top, one thing I find fascinating about this is how many quote unquote modern classics this has inspired and just some incredible drinks out there. And how exceptional is it that not only are we talking four ingredients and equal parts, but four very complex ingredients that work. I mean, this is not the formula that you would expect to be the one that can be so, I don't know, so endlessly riffed on and come up with these incredible other drinks. How do you feel about that? I think that that's a, I think that is accurate. I think that it is, it does show how much of a sort of like needle in a haystack or like a bit of a miracle this recipe is. I think that the, um, A, the composition, like you said, four ingredients, equal parts is somewhat wild. Um, I also think that as we think about like the sort of, you know, vintage spirits, forgotten cocktails that are many of which were made with lost ingredients that either had to be reformulated and, and re reintroduced or someone like Eric Seed, you know, brought back as an importer around 2006 or seven, that part of the miracle of this drink was that green chartreuse was still available, you know, back when Murray was mixing with it and that he was, uh, able to source Luxardo Maraschino, which is sort of the, the sort of standard. So I think that the one thing that doesn't, I don't think, get talked about enough is that back, you know, when this drink first started getting made by Murray, we had very, we had like five gins at the Pegu Club, or we had, you know, very few tequilas, yeah. very few, like vodka, there was a lot of different vodka available at this time, but there wasn't a broad selection of other analogs. So for instance, like Genepi or, you know, some of the sort of chartreuse analogs that are available now were like, you know, a they were not around. So I think that this is an interesting drink because it didn't need to be, Eric C didn't need to save this and bring back one of the ingredients. These ingredients were around and thankfully they, they hadn't been reformulated like, like Amer Pecan or Lalay or some mm -hmm. say Campari to, to taste so different that we couldn't imagine what it tasted like when it was originally created. So I think that, that this is a, it's a miraculous formula, but it's also miraculous because the ingredients that it was originally created with were still kicking around unmolested, you know, 50 years later. Yeah. I think that is fascinating. And, and, you know, the fact that there's four of them in there, the chance, the, the odds of that happening really do diminish. Um, so no, I think that's a really great point. Um, how about those riffs? Before we do do the deep dive on the on the on the last word itself and its profile, how about those? How about those riffs? Would you say that maybe is my understanding is probably the paper plane is the one that kicks it off, or it's certainly the one that was the most well known the, riff from the beginning. The interesting uh, history of this drink from the East Coast perspective, I'm sure there's like a West Coast perspective that. Amy Boudreau or Paul Clark or Robert Hasser or 
even some like Marco Dionysus down in San Francisco, who was also working with Chartreuse and his swizzle, um, would be able to tell you about. But the the virtuoso Mr. Potato Head uh, cocktailist of the East Coast was Phil Ward, and so any any drink that was worth riffing on, Phil was like had had seventeen riffs on it before. Mm-hmm. before uh, anyone even got started thinking about riffing on it. So the first one would have been the final ward, which Phil, which Audrey put on the menu at Pegu Club. And I believe that would have come before the paper plane, which uh, would have come soon after, but not before that. And that was just Phil subbing Rittenhouse for gin, and I believe yellow chartreuse for green chartreuse. Green. Um, I definitely would agree with you that the paper plane is far and away the the most significant riff, but in many ways, Nonino and, uh, Aperol are not, are really have, are distant, 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 like sort of almost other species than Chartreuse and, 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 uh, and Maraschino. So I would say that the final ward would be the, the drink that I would say is the most famous riff on it with Mm -hmm. sort of paper plane being like a sort of a distant relative. And then, it's funny that you mentioned that and about Phil's quality of the, the Mr. Potato Head there, you know, taking that idea of cocktails because he has another one, the Division Bell. Exactly. Which, like I said, he would do it. Yeah. He would do so many riffs so quickly that were all so good that you almost got to a point where you're like, all right, Phil, like that's a cocktail. I'm going to find something else. Like he, <laughs> he really wore everything out. And he, at that time, really had a like a cult group of people who drank at his bar who would have come and had, and like Phil made him the drink. And then they'd come to like another bar and be like, Hey, will you make me Phil's drink? And we'd all look at them and be like, no, Phil's bartending two blocks away. You can go after <laughs> his own drinks. Uh, I actually had Phil make me a division bell just last week. And it, I, I can confirm it's still a wonderful drink and he still, he still knocks them out very well. Um, I think it would be remiss of us, sorry, not to mention the the last one in this kind of pantheon of last word riffs, which would be the Naked and Famous, um, another wonderful drink, Joaquin Simo, friend of the show as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the Naked and Famous also falls under, I would say the Naked and Famous is some ways more of a paper plane riff than a last word riff. But I would agree that that is another drink that will become a modern classic. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, this is this is obviously an episode about the last word. So um, you know, we've paid our we've paid our respects there to those modern iterations and and riffs and whatnot. But what are you looking for from this cocktail? Obviously, the answer is balance. But with with these you know powerful ingredients being used in equal proportions, what do you want to taste in this drink? Well, I think that that is one of the other miracles of this drink for me is that. For a drink this old, a lot of recipes, you know, 50, 60, 70 years later need some rejiggering as far as the proportion goes, like maybe a little more gin or a little less, you know, but I think the fascinating thing about the last word is that it, it stands true and balanced in my opinion at equal parts. So I would say that what I'm looking for is the maraschino is going to shine through if you're mixing with Luxardo. The chartreuse has this obviously bracing herbal sweetness. 
I'm looking for the lime juice to have been squeezed from a lime uh, within six hours of service and not the either sour mix or yesterday's lime juice, or perhaps it could be something that's squeezed right then and there. And then I think with the gin, I, I think that there are, going back to when this drink became popular, we would have mixed this with Beefeater or Plymouth or Tanqueray. Um, but now there are 700 gins in America. So I'm looking for a gin that has a London dry profile. And I think that because of the power of the chartreuse and the maraschino, I'm looking for something that's not, I mean, chartreuse and is, is obviously over a hundred proof. So I think that some bartenders might want to use a Navy strength gin here to, to sort of bring out the juniper notes, but I think that's going to make this drink a little too, a little, little strong. So I'd say like mm-hmm. a classic London dry is what I'm looking for. And, and let's do that now. Let, let's move in. Let's, let's focus even closer on gin. So classic London dry, um, you're not looking for Navy strength then. Obviously, there, there are a couple of modern iterations here of, of the, the London dry style. Um, what, where do you find yourself landing in terms of the sweet spot for ABV? And do you have any brands that you wish to call out? No pressure to. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I would like this drink with, um, of a full strength London dry. So Plymouth, um, which isn't a London dry, but which is similar enough will work fine. I would say that when Beefeater recently dropped its proof, it sort of went from like my sort of everyday gin to sort of out of the rotation a little bit. I think uh, Tanqueray is going to be great here. I think Ford's is going to be great here. Um, Bombay, you know, like Sipsmith, something that is something that's not trying to share the local botanicals that they've foraged, um, but something that really is sort of centered around juniper. Yeah. Yeah, those are all wonderful choices there. Um, It's funny that one of the other ingredients we'll get onto is the Luxardo Maraschino liqueur there. Um, of course, that producer now has their own gin. Are you familiar with that? Or are you familiar with the story of that? I'm not, no. So I was out there, uh, just as a little sidebar here, I was out there February 2020, um, you know, just before it all happened. Yeah. And, uh, got, you know, amazing opportunity to visit the producer. And they were actually just tasting us. They, I think they very, very recently just come out with this new gin. It, it is now available in the US for sure. Um, and they were telling us the backstory of that. And I believe... I don't want to. I don't. I, I don't want to misremember anything here. But I believe the gist of the story goes that um, that particular part of Italy would have been occupied during the Second World War, and prior to that time, they were actually making gin. Interesting. And I think in recent times they they were going through some family records and and came to realize this and were actually you know um, put in contact with someone who had their original family recipe because it had fallen out of um, fallen out of their possession or been taken away from their possession, as I understand it. And um, so they managed to, you know, in, in, through whatever means, get that recipe back. And I believe that did inspire the gin that is on the market today. I also understand that I think they made a few modifications. They realized that through technology and ingredients and whatnot, they had to tweak some things. But... Um, Kind of fascinating story that they 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 were doing that back in the day, and these, I mean, you do find these ingredients together in in multiple cocktails. Yeah, I think that the 
the aviation cocktail is another one where, you know, obviously gin and maraschino play really well. So I think that Matteo Luxardo is great. Um, I've hung out with him all over the world at various bar shows and, and what they're doing at Luxardo is excellent. I think that the maraschino in particular, though, is the is the most oh, it's the real star. It's like, the real star of the show. Yeah, really nothing like for them. But yeah, and I, and I think they do accept visitors. I know they accept visitors because they've got a nice little gift shop there where I spent a lot of money. So if you ever find yourself in the area, folks, that are, or, or nearby, worth a detour. It's a great little trip there. Um, yeah, moving on to the next ingredient, though, green chartreuse. Um, maybe just a primer for some folks that are not too familiar and they say, and, and they look at this recipe and they say, well, I've got yellow on my shelf, but not green. Um, that's not going to be a like-for-like like substitution, right? No, the green chartreuse is a little stronger than the yellow chartreuse. And the yellow chartreuse has a quite, kind of honeyed quality to it as far as its like sweetness profile. And, and the genope uh, really kind of is more, I think, prominent on the, on the yellow chartreuse than on the green. The green has more, for me, more evergreen, piney, alpine, uh, notes that really sort of pair beautifully with gin and lime juice. So I would say that um, the other thing is the, the green chartreuse is the original and the yellow chartreuse was formulated, uh, I think, a few decades later. But they're, they're both ancient as far as mm-hmm. spirits go. But, but green is, is different and it's going gonna, it's gonna to make a more authentic and, and delicious last word than yellow. Is that the – I mean – Maybe there is none, but is that the anchor of this drink? Is that the one ingredient that pulls everything together? Or is it just this case of them all just kind of swirling around together in perfect harmony? I would argue that it's the latter. I think that it is, um, they're really all important. And I think that a four ingredient drink, um, typically, like you're saying, does have, there's more places to hide the evidence of like what's, what's necessary, what's important. But I would say that in this case, they all carry their weight pretty equally, including mm-hmm. lime juice. Like, I think that this is a drink that um, fresh lime juice is, is key to. Mm-hmm. And, and, and before we move on from chartreuse, one final thought here. How do you feel about this ingredients now status? Or maybe it's been for a long time, but in recent times, it feels like it's got this status of, this collector's item, people going out there looking for old dusty bottles as they would do in other categories and just realizing that this thing can can really last forever almost. Um, is that something you've seen happen over time or has that always been the case for Chartreuse? It was never, I mean, we carried Chartreuse VEP at Gramercy Tavern back at this time and I was aware of the Elixir Vegetal. I think Linnell carried it at Linnell's and got me a few bottles there. And then I did have the good fortune to visit the distillery and sort of see the museum and, and was made aware of some of the really cool old bottles they made. They made a bicentennial bottle that I was born in 76 and, and I would always love to get my hands on that. But yeah, like about around the same, a little after, I think it was Billy Sunday in Chicago uh, was one of the first bars that I was aware of that was collecting old Amari and really sort of, I think that obviously Chartreuse is not an Amaro, but I think that they were mm-hmm. collecting old Amari in particular. And then Chartreuse, aged Chartreuse might have been something that I think sommeliers kind of got behind. I know um, yeah. that that was something that they are interested in. But yeah, I would agree that the 
in following on the footsteps of like the sort of whole pappy American whiskey thing, spirits collecting has really started becoming like a sort of Bitcoin for rich people. And they, <laughs> they really do take a lot of the joy out of like, like they, yeah. <laughs> they take a lot of the joy out of it. Um, so yes, it was never a thing when this drink was or- originally coming around, but this drink was originally coming around with, with the green chartreuse that was available. It wasn't being made with like vintage bottlings. I will say that uh, having tried old chartreuse that, um, it is special and it is worth, you know, if someone has some, just giving it a try. I know Joaquin at pouring ribbons opened with a, a selection of old chartreuse that he really loved. And, um, it's special, but it's also, like you said, it's kind of, it's now the thing of, of rich investment bankers. So it's not really for us anymore. No, you know, we just can't have these nice things that get taken away from us, but there we go. Alas. Yep. Um, Marischino, we, we recovered a little bit about it, but can you maybe explain what this is? And also, I mean, you're the expert here, but I can't off the top of my head think of other cocktails that include it in such a large proportion. So what is it? What is it? What's it bringing to the drink? And yeah, is that an outlier? Yeah. So Maraschino was an interesting one, especially back then, because Maraschino was synonymous back then with the sort of like nuclear red cellulose cherries that were, you know, served in Shirley Temples and and Manhattans, regretfully, back then. Around the time that uh, Luxardo Maraschino started, um, you know, really sort of making its way with with both the Brooklyn cocktail and the aviation cocktail and the last word, um, Henry Price, who was the importer of the product, started bringing around the Luxardo cherries, which were cherries made, you know, the Morasca cherries that were uh, used to make the maraschino that were served in a syrup. And so Audrey at the Pegu Club and other bartenders would buy these giant number 10 cans of them and serve their Manhattans and drinks with cherries, with real cherries instead of those nuclear red cherries. So there, in the early days, maraschino was like, you know, people were thinking you're going to add cherry juice to their drink. It is not cherry juice and it is not a liqueur akin to sort of maybe cherry herring or, or a liqueur made by maceration. It's a liqueur made by distillation where something akin to Kirsch brandy or Kirsch eau de vie or schnapps is distilled. And then the uh, cherry spirit is aged in, I believe, ashwood, uh, large, large sort of open uh, casks, which are going to not necessarily make it super woody, but uh, allow for oxidation and, yeah. and and then it's sweetened and bottled in this kind of like Chianti style straw wrapped bottle, which thankfully they haven't changed uh, in a very long time. And so it's, um, it's much more close to Kirschwasser, sweetened Kirschwasser than it is to like cherry syrup, like cherry herring. And it is, um, the, the, the large format barrel aging kind of mellows it in a way that that Kirschwasser for some can seem somewhat sharp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and talk about that iconic bottle right there with the straw wrapping on it. And also, well, t- two points to note. Number one, very tall, so can present some difficulties. Certainly it has for me at home here trying to fit it somewhere on the shelf. But just another one, I feel like it's one of those ingredients that if I go into a bar that I'm not familiar with or maybe in a different city, 
if I see that somewhere behind the bar and looks like it's in a place where it's getting some fairly regular amount of use, I feel like, okay, this is, this is a place where we, you know, we can try some drinks. I can maybe stray from, from some of the safer options because I, th- I think that's a good signifier right there. I would agree. It's really a beacon that you sort of like look at a bar and you see that bottle and you're like, oh, these people make kind of classic cocktails. And I think that the, you know, one of the things that's exciting about Luxardo is it's a family company. You know, Matteo Luxardo runs it currently. It's multi-generational. It's still in the family's hands. They, uh, they're out and about and available. They remind, they're sort of, they remind me a little bit of the Noninos. They're, they're sort of, uh, they're old school. And, and I think that that straw wrap bottle is something, you know, so many of the brands that we know and love are owned now by large, uh, liquor companies, God bless your heart, large liquor companies, but the large liquor companies, you know, they, they turn these brands over frequently to different marketing, uh, and sales leads, who immediately want to make their impact upon the brands by repackaging them, changing the names, sometimes changing the formulas slightly. And thankfully, Luxardo, you know, being a family company, is they're all about preserving tradition there. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it is. It's a beacon on a back bar that lets you know that the bartenders uh, have a few of these recipes in their back pocket and, and probably are more inclined to, to make them correctly for you yeah and I I guess a final thought for myself on that you know just that um and I say this in a very loving way just that that kind of awkward bottle that's that's not very practical but that's traditional it's very Italian for me just being like no this is our tradition we're not going to change this uh even though it might be helpful for some or some people might clamor for it but no that's a wonderful one final ingredient as you mentioned lime juice you said it's a very important component of this drink so can you tell us about that yeah, I think that the I've been reflecting a lot over the especially the last few years during the pandemic about how the, you know, cocktail, the so-called cocktail renaissance, like what what were its um what spurred it, what kind of drove it. And, and I think that a lot of a lot of what we talk about now about why we make these drinks has to do with these old spirits and these sort of loungy uh, speakeasy, basically bar bar oriented um, elements of what what's driven this thing. But I would say that one thing that we haven't maybe sort of given enough shine to is you know Dale's and Tony Abaganum's like early message going back to two thousand, which was like, hey, we should we should make these drinks with fresh juices, fresh ingredients, and and premium spirits, and not uh, sour mix and sort of like the sort of bottles that are hidden underneath the bar. And I think that one sort of sad, but necessary. And, and I, it's like, I, I, I don't feel the need to go into it here, but I think that we've seen a very sort of rapid reindustrialization of the craft cocktail over the pandemic to sort of save bars and save bartenders. And I think it's a good thing. And I think that perhaps a lot of the craft cocktail ethos is moving from bars to to homes where people are starting to get into this themselves. But I do think that this drink wouldn't have perhaps made the splash that it made if it was being made with sour mix or super juice or, or if it was served in a can, I think Mm -hmm. it was, it was able to shine because it was made with juice, fresh squeezed lime juice that was 
prepared either before service or squeezed all the minute as they did at milk and honey back then. So I think that, mm-hmm. that is, um, I don't think we're talking enough right now about the importance of fresh ingredients in drinks. A hundred percent. And, and even within that, I guess for, for this cocktail in particular, like something about the profile of lime in particular and its sharpness. I mean, even if you used fresh lemon juice for this, it just, it just wouldn't be the same cocktail either. Right? Like if if you don't have a lime, you, you can't, you can't substitute that lemon in there and expect the same results. No, and I think that it's it is key. And I think that, you know, the when I create drinks, I think a lot about color theory and how, you know, different sort of co- like when I'm thinking of what to put together, I, I usually think of colors and I just think of the green lime and green chartreuse and the sort of green evergreen botanicals of gin. And it just makes sense. Um and I think that it's fresh lime juice is really important to this drink. The chartreuse and the maraschino, the chartreuse especially are quite sweet. And so you need that bracing acidity and tartness that lime brings, especially if you're squeezing with, you know, an elbow or um, something that's going to get some of the oil into the, into the glass, that oil is going to really sort of, I think, play, do a lot of interesting things with the, the complexity of the maraschino and the green chartreuse. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's incredible listening to you talk about that, just thinking about how all of these ingredients are kind of supercharged in their own category. Um, there's no passengers here. Like they're, they're, all t- they're all doing all of the heavy lifting together. There's, nothing's being, you know, you know, nothing's kind of lazier than the other. All of them are very, very focused and, yeah, supercharged, as I, would, as I say there. I agree, and I think that that's why this drink is a really interesting drink and, and really sort of, you know, a lot of recipes, I, I think about the martini, like the original martini, like going back to like the turf club or it's sort of, sort of its antecedents was made with like old Tom gin, which was sweetened. And usually a very, it was like, it was literally like an old Tom Manhattan was the original man, martini. Mm-hmm. And now when we talk about the martini, we, we have to also include vodka with no vermouth and either brine and blue cheese stuff, olives, like the Delta between the original sort of like, you know, predecessor, like the martini sort of like as a placenta to the martini of, you know, either today or somewhat recently, they, they don't even share ingredients where, (laughs) or like the daiquiri, which is a drink that I love. Like so many people, when you say daiquiri, they think of a frozen strawberry daiquiri in a, in a styrofoam cup. And that is nothing to do with the sort of daiquiri that I think about. Whereas when we say last word there, we're thinking gin, lime, green chartreuse and and Luxardo maraschino mostly. And And that is a, it's like a little mini miracle that it didn't have to shape shift like a chameleon to be, to still be sort of talked about today. Like that is, it's unusual. The, the final cocktail has had the last word, the yeah. original recipe. Yeah, it's very... Which is wonderful. Now I'm going to ask you to tell... Now I'm going to ask you to explain how you would make this cocktail if you were looking for the, you know, the ultimate version for it, if you can explain it for us step by step as if we were together here, start to finish, and finish by telling us as well your kind of preferred glassware and garnish for the drink. Yeah, so I mean, I think that the... Drinks are um, 
there's some modularity to every drink. And, and I think that it, you either are making the drink for yourself or you're making it for a guest. So the one place you're going to use green chartreuse, you're going to use Luxardo Maraschino, you're going to use fresh squeezed lime juice. The one place where there's um, room for sort of personalization is the gin. So if you know I was making this drink for you, I would ask you if you had a gin preference. And if you said, you know, Fords or Tanqueray or Beefeater or Bombay or, you know, what, like then then that's how I would make it. Because I think that it's very important that we understand that we make drinks for people, not for ourselves, unless we're making ourselves a drink. Yeah. I, I would take that London dry gin. I would make this drink equal parts. Um, I'd probably make it three quarter, three quarter, three quarter, three quarter. At an ounce of when you're talking about an ounce of green chartreuse, an ounce of gin, an ounce, it's just a the caloric content and alcoholic content of that drink <laughs> is gonna it's, a lot. it's gonna be a lot. Like it's gonna be like night night time after that. So I'm gonna make this drink three quarter, three quarter, three quarter, three quarter. I'm gonna measure those all into a Boston shaker. I'm gonna shake it vigorously with uh, cold draft or, or, you know, large cubes. I'm going to fine strain it probably into a Nicanora glass, which I've pulled from my freezer. Uh, and I'm not going to garnish it. I'm going to, I'm going to serve it to you. Uh, mm-hmm. Fantastic. And if you were making that drink for yourself, would that still be Plymouth there that you're using? You mentioned earlier, or would you have a different preference today? Um, or is it just a funny? I actually, when I, wrote my last book, I forced myself to, um, recipe tests, like, you know, like try every drink with like five different spirits to make sure that I like represented my favorite. So if I go to the manual, I liked this drink. I'm contradicting myself before with Perry's tot Navy strength gin. Okay. So that would have in 2000, that would have been my gin of choice probably back in around 2014. Mm-hmm. I would say that my, probably my gin of choice, if I uh, hadn't, if I didn't have Perry's Tot from my friend Alan Katz would probably be something like Tanqueray. That sounds wonderful. And yeah, you know, I, I, I'll say this about Perry's Tot as well, though. It does come in at that strength, but that alcohol is very, very well incorporated. I mean, you don't smell or taste it, but it does. It's a punchy gin. Yeah. And it does have that classic profile too. Yeah. Alan Katz is one of my favorite distillers in America. And um, this was a process when I, when I tested the recipes for the book, I, I did it all sort of blind. Like I, I obviously, I set up the gins that I thought might work in it, but I let my sort of palate be the guide. So back then, Perry's Tot would have led, led, the, led the tasting for me. I think that's a wonderful lesson too as well, though, that, you know, the theory is wonderful, but the final judge should always be the palate. And I think on that note, we should understand that we are moving targets as people and that, you know, my palate in 2014 is not my palate today. And and for that reason, it's important not only to like taste and to taste in a rigorous way, but it's important to revisit because what you, you know, what I originally published in the first book is not going to necessarily stick up in the next book. And, and, and there's no reason to think that it will be the same, you know, for today. Yeah. Like Tanqueray was my gin in the first book. And then if I were to 
taste today, who knows what it would be? I would have to to set up a you know a blind tasting. And of course, you know these are gins that okay, you know they 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 do strive for wonderful consistency, but these are fresh ingredients in there, botanicals, complex recipes. I mean, there's always going to be a slight variation, maybe bottle bottle to bottle, but probably you know we're we're probably getting a little bit too microscopic there. No, I love it. I think that that is the like nerdiness that I mean. I sort of. I don't spend a lot of time talking about drinks anymore because I'm really nerdy about drinks and really, and a lot of people, <laughs> like I can see like Jeff Morgenthaler's eyes just rolling deeply into like, it just almost <laughs> in his head as he's like listening to me talk about this. Cause I think there are, they're, they're very respectable contemporaries of mine who would, who would view this sort of pedantic sort of like nerdery as just, uh, as odious. Whereas like for me, it's like, this is the sort of, this is why cocktails are interesting to me. It's not, uh, it's not something that I should shrug off. No, a hundred percent. And, and I think that, you know, if I can break the fourth wall here somewhat for, for a moment, that's what I love about recording this show is that not only are these deep dives on, on drinks, but we get to you know, spend some time with different personalities and different interpretations of making cocktails. And there's no right answer at the end of the day. It's, it's, it's just wonderful to always, you know, be on the other end of these chats and, and, and learn diff people's different approaches. I think that's a great point. Well, Jim, any final thoughts here on the last word today before we do move into that next section and of course, get to know your own personality as a drinker a little bit more. No, I mean, I'd say my last word on the last word is just um, don't. I, I, I checked out the latest sort of definitive history of the last word, and that would have been in the Oxford Companion. And I was grateful that Sinjin Frizzell, who I worked with at the Pegu Club, um, you know, in the first paragraph, or sorry, the second paragraph, he mentions Murray. So I would say that do not make this drink modern bartenders without mentioning Murray Stenson at some point. That's the last word. That's the last word right there, or at least for that section at least, because I am going to uh, hit you with question number one right now, and that would be what style or category typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? I am currently the beverage director of a Japanese restaurant in Portland, Oregon, and um, we are basically featuring it's a sort of new take on running a Japanese restaurant where we're thinking I'm running it like a Japanese person would, as opposed to just trying to import as much stuff as I can from Japan um, and masquerading as a Japanese restaurant in Portland. So we are featuring um, as much of many of the great local distilled spirits in Portland in the Pacific Northwest as possible. So if you come to my bar uh, today you will see a lot of interesting uh, whiskeys and and gins and vodkas and all sorts of stuff that that mainly is distilled in Oregon um, that we think is really interesting and special. Nice, yeah, great, great distillation, craft distillation going on up there for sure. And and yeah, beyond just the the, the things you think of, those whiskeys too. I've had a couple; they're wonderful. Yep. Um, question number two. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? I would say the jigger. I would say that um, it was funny. I was looking at Red Tip Bar Spoon, the like sort of deadpan spoof Instagram account, and it was talking about 
jiggering or something recently. But I think that the jigger is something that um, it's a useful tool. I think that that um, I love it. It's important. Use it. And I'm very apt for this drink too, by the way. I do not want someone free pouring the ingredients from my last word. This is a this is one that we've spoken about needs to be equal proportions and it works. Yeah, I would agree. Like I think when you're talking about like especially lesser pours of a quarter and half and three quarter. The the one thing that surprises me a lot when I go to bars now is a lot of young bartenders work with only one jigger, a one and two ounce, and they eyeball the half quarter and three quarter measurements and, and cocktail kingdom and others make a half ounce, three quarter ounce jigger. And I would, I would argue that that jigger is your friend and you should put it next to the one, two and use it. Yeah. And I mean, it does require some dexterity there when it, if you, if you're trying to use, you know, both at the same time, but I've seen some folks do some wonderful work with those. Agreed. Question number three, then. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? I had a rough day at a restaurant in New York, and uh, part of my rough day stemmed from rough treatment from the from the kitchen staff at that restaurant. And one of the roughest of that kitchen staff, when he saw me really sort of struggling with the roughness of that day, pulled me aside and ironically told me, but but thankfully told me that the most important thing in this industry is to not burn any bridges. And uh, he said it from a place of love. He was a very tough person. Um, and while I can't say that I, I live a, 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 a bridge, a burn bridge free, I've led a burn <laughs> bridge free career, mm-hmm. that there are unfortunately some uh, broken bridges and smoldering ruins <laughs> career. I would say that that is the most uh valuable piece of advice I've ever been given. Every mm-hmm. We work in the relationship business and the way that you treat people, no matter what station, whether they're your boss or your, whether the new person is, is everything. And people will never forget, your coworkers will never forget the way you treated them, especially when you had power or influence. And so I yeah. find that, um, I'm glad I got that piece of advice in my career when I did. I've always kept it close. I've always um, kicked myself when I when I could have done a better job with it. But it is it is the most important bit of advice I've ever been given, and I and I mm-hmm. holds true today more than ever. A hundred percent. Question number four here, penultimate one. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Hmm. I loved bar radio in Tokyo. Um, it was one of my, it's definitely, I think my, my favorite bar on earth. And so if I, if I could only go to one more bar in my life, I probably would go back to bar radio. I really, um, thought that was a special place for me. Final question here for you. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Hmm. Back in the day when when um, I was footloose and fancy free at PDT, I used to make myself uh, Champs Elysees with Frappan XO and Chartreuse VEP, or I used to make myself tea punches with uh, Nissan Reserve Ooh. Special. So I would say that. 
I think if if I was going out, I think it would be that that Champs Louisier with the uh, the frappan and the uh, chartreuse VEP. And I think that's a, a good connection to the last word. I I do have a fondness for chartreuse in my life. Nice. Good way to go. Good way to go out if that is indeed to be the end. And also, I, I'm pretty sure the first time that cocktail was featured for this question. So thanks for sharing that one. Of course. Jim, thank you so much as well for joining us today. Um, I did lie, actually. I'm going to add one more question here for you, a bonus one. And you haven't been able to prepare for this, so I'm sorry. But I want you to have the last word on today's show by sharing us your favorite word. Hmm. Uh, my favorite word is curiosity. I think curiosity is a, um, a gift and it is a gift that keeps on giving uh, for those of us who are, are lucky enough to, to possess it. Wonderful. And, and can I just say as well, that's tough there, coming up with a favorite word. I've been asked it before. I've thought about it before. It's very hard to settle upon. Uh, that's a great sentiment that you just came up with there on the fly. So um, probably means that it's even more true as well. Yeah, I really, I think that being curious is the key to a, a, a fruitful life. You know, I'm not, people sometimes tell me they're bored. <laughs> I look at them like they're in head. I'm like, what? <laughs> I have like so much to do. Like I, I don't have enough hours in the day. Like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm running, you know, I, my mind's running a hundred. Like I can't imagine being bored. And I think it's just cause I'm curious. Speaking of words, by the way, that is one, that is a word that was banned in my household growing up. We were told, you know, that you have so much stuff. There is no way that you can be bored. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a good one. All right then. Well, let's um, yeah, let's let's head out there now and and make ourselves some last words. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Yeah, thank you for for having me on the show. It's uh, this is fun. Cheers. Okay, that was a lot of info. But here's the good news: every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on VinePair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Greenberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>